Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. With us now is the Premier of Saskatchewan. Always have the uh, the pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak with uh, Premier Mo about what's going on in his province, in Western Canada, in this country, what the relationship is like between the different levels of government, the federal government, and the provinces, and what the issues are that matter. Premier, how are you? I'm doing great. Great, uh, pardon me, Roy. Uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm just fine, thank you. I'm dis- disturbed by a uh, story that we've been hearing about and learning about over the last number of days. I mean, we knew what was going on. We didn't know what the numbers were. And Ipsos polling uh, did an exclusive poll for Global News and found that 22% of Canadians are saying they are out of money, out of money, out of money. Uh, 28% of women premier, another 32% of Canadians, Daryl Bricker of Ipsos told us, fear that if uh, there's another increase in pricing, they will be at that same level of being out of money. And I took phone calls from people across the country talking about the distress they're feeling and uh, what they're experiencing as the dollars do not cover the expenses any longer. Um, it's not necessary to be this severe in Canada, is it, Premier? Don't we have natural resources that we could sell to countries that want our natural resources, like Japan and Germany? Wouldn't that pump billions of dollars into our national treasury and help pay for services and maybe provide some tax relief? Or am I missing something? No, I don't think you're missing anything. Uh, it's quite tragic, actually. The the results of that survey are should be disappointing for uh, every everyone in in our nation, and and I think in particular disappointing for uh, any of those of and myself included in in leadership. But we have uh, every opportunity as uh, government leaders to do what we can to encourage, to foster, to attract investment into. Uh, into industries that um, we do well in. Um, and you're right, the industries that we do well in uh, ultimately are industries that produce goods, manufacture goods, uh, produce uh, energy goods, agricultural goods, um, manufacture so many uh, various kinds of goods from automobiles to jets to trains to whatever it might be. And then we, we, we're an export-based economy. We provide those products to the uh, to, to other Canadians, to other folks in North America, and, and ultimately to the world. And and I, I think this is a time where our, our governments really need to focus on the industries that are creating that wealth for Canadians in, in communities from, from coast to coast to coast, um, and doing what they can to encourage investment, encourage the, the strength of that economy. And ultimately, uh, that is going to change the 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 numbers uh, in that in that particular survey and make a better life for Canadian families, which is what we're all elected to do. And I, I fear and I, I, I think that we, we may not be a, as a nation, uh, you know, focusing on the things that are ultimately creating a better life for, for that next generation. Yeah, you were on my program, I think about three or four years ago, and Premier Higgs was on with you from New Brunswick, and he said we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. And uh, those words come back to me from time to time. This is being one of those times. Premier, what about the economic projections for 2023 for Saskatchewan and Western Canada particularly? 
Well, I think they're strong, uh, despite some of the challenges uh, that we're seeing and, and uh, some of the opportunities that, uh, quite frankly, are missed. And I, I think you've spoken about you know, one of those opportunities that has been missed, and that's the opportunity to um, ship a Canadian LNG to uh, a number of countries that have been here asking for it, but I think a number of countries that would also be interesting, interested in purchasing uh, that product. We have opportunities to expand our our other energy products our oil products in this province so we have opportunities to expand uh, our, our value-added food production and provide that to the world provide food security and energy security to all of us in this continent and and, and across the uh, you know across the planet that we that we live on and so i think things are looking fairly strong uh, economically here in saskatchewan at least and i dare say across uh, the, the prairie provinces for sure um, but that isn't to say that we don't have some challenges. We have, you know, federal government now talking about things like just transition after uh, bringing in, you know, uh, uh, industry harming uh, policies like carbon taxation, like the clean electricity standard, like the clean fuel standard. Uh, all of these are, are hindrances to uh, what ultimately that, that economy can grow to. And, and we're feeling that in Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan is one of the areas that's identified in that that just transition document is being uh, disproportionately impacted by by such a policy. And I I really am concerned that we're following uh, down the same path that the European Union has in not valuing uh, energy security for, for our residents, thereby probably sacrificing to some degree our potential food security in the future. And it's a it's it's been proven in the, in the European Union to be a, a mistaken path and a path that uh, they they most certainly uh, should have at least kept energy security at the decision making table, um, and we're, and we're heading down that very same path here in Saskatchewan. So it's disappointing, um, but despite uh, a number of those policies, and um, us in this province have a a number of policies in in effect and legislation in effect to combat um, some of those policies. I think the future looks bright for Saskatchewan. Yeah, Saskatchewan First Act. Um, I want to ask about that in a minute. Let me just let me just ask you this. So you have the Prime Minister of Japan, the Chancellor of Germany. They come to Canada physically, personally, and they come here with one objective, and that is to, as I understand it, I think as most of us would believe to understand it, they come here with the objective of securing LNG um, exports, what they need as powerful economic countries, and as allies. And they essentially get the old football huddle, pat on the bum, see you later. Um, we'll give you some, but no no assurance that they're going to get what they need and what they came to Canada for. At the same time, if we sell them what they require, what the world requires, what we have in abundance, that can only help our economy, help our social programs, help fund our healthcare system, which is under massive stress. I don't, for the life of me, understand, Premier, logic does not apply here, at least I can't find it, for the decisions that are being made in Canada. I asked you this before. Am I missing something again? No, what an awful error in judgment we've made. The, that uh, would expand uh, the most, one of the most sustainable uh, LNG uh, energy-producing regions in the world, which is uh, in, in, in Canada, whether it be on the, the eastern seaboard or whether it be 
um, in, in some of the prairie provinces and into British Columbia. We, we produce some of the most sustainable product that you can find on earth. And that's why uh, we have always said that the world should be accessing more Canadian product and Canadian governments and, and provincial governments should be doing everything they can to uh, encourage that investment and to uh, provide that comparatively sustainable product uh, to the world. And so what a what a uh, an error in judgment uh, we made in not uh, saying certainly uh, we can do that. Here are the folks that are in this industry. Let's organize a roundtable and figure out how we're going to get it to you. And we will do what we can on the regular regulatory front as the Canadian government uh, to provide our allies uh, with energy from Canada so that they have energy security and trading with a friendly nation like we are. Um, and ultimately, um, answering uh, that very first question you had asked is is to provide uh, for better jobs, for more higher higher paying jobs if, to Canadian people that are literally living in communities right across this, this nation. And so uh, a, a tremendous error in judgment in not uh, just simply saying, yes, certainly uh, we will do what we can to uh, to to provide you uh, with whatever you need, whether it be LNG, whether it be comparatively sustainable oil products, uh, or ultimately whether it even even be some of the other manufactured goods or agricultural products that we provide. And into the future, um, we're here with uh, rare earth elements that we are processing and providing to the world as well. And so Canada has a tremendous role to play in this, and this was a, a misstep. So, Premier, when we talk about just transition, which was supposedly a marvelous plan, that was going to have more green jobs and people available to do them. And then the issue of fertilizer, uh, which is core to everything economically going forward in Saskatchewan. And uh, the decision made by Ottawa, do I have this correctly, was not made based on scientific uh, research. No, of course not. And it, it wasn't made on on uh, what your caller was, uh, as well, I, I don't know where Eric is farming in Canada, but if he's in the Prairie Provinces, uh, he's, he's already producing uh, the the most sustainable food that you can find on Earth. Uh, um, he, he said it takes 50 liters of diesel fuel for a uh, an acre, I believe it was an acre of wheat uh, to be heated and, and harvested. Um, well, our, our Saskatchewan canola and wheat are are, are produced with a 65 percent lower carbon content than any of their competitors around the world. If Eric's growing field peas, uh, that number increases to 92% lower. And so um, my question is, and my question for, for, for your callers and, and all Canadians is, is, is if these are the numbers, um, if we're already producing the most sustainable food in the world, using the fertilizer levels that we are, and it's expensive, so folks are careful with where they put it, um, using, the, uh, using the, uh, the, the figures that we have, what are we trying to transition to? Are we trying to transition to purchasing our food from uh, uh, somewhere else in the world, thereby sacrificing our food security? Are we trying to uh, um, transition to purchasing uh, food that has a much higher carbon content in it than what we are already producing or what Eric is producing uh, here in, in Canada today? And so, you know, my question is, is, is what are we trying to transition to? And my second question is, what is the cost? What is the economic cost in in transitioning away from our, our Canadian meat products, whatever they might be, um, and uh, which in many cases are the most sustainable products that we can access on Earth? And so the, the whole notion of, of transitioning uh, is uh, ridiculous uh, at its very at its very beginning, and uh, it brings back to me the the comment you said at the beginning uh, that our that my colleague Premier Higgs had said uh, three years ago. I think he said he he mentioned. Uh, you know, we really need to think about whether we are a nation 
and, and I would say that we are, and we're a global leading nation, uh, or or are we a notion? And and if we go down uh, these these policy paths, the same policy paths that have proved to be uh, quite destructive uh, in the European Union, um, those those are notional uh, paths that we just simply shouldn't take. No. I was while you were talking, I was thinking, well, maybe we're trying to transition to Europe, but we don't want to do that because they're in serious trouble. Premier, I don't know what happens to the um, I don't know what happens to the trust between levels of government. If these sorts of things are going on that we found out about laterally over the last number of weeks in Canada, how how does the how does the conversation go forward? How does the trust factor get established and get sustained? I, I don't know how that happens. And I, and and let me just segue here. Did you have it? Oh, here, here's. Uh, let me play this for you. Uh, Tom just found it, Premier. This is what uh, Premier Higgs said on this program. It makes you wonder if our if if Canada is a nation or an ocean. There it is, Premier of New Brunswick. After attending his first uh, Premier's meeting with the Prime Minister, it makes him wonder whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. Um. I forgot what my question was now. Oh, yeah. So the the trust the, that has to exist to a certain level in any relationship, you're about to embark in a new uh, series of talks with the federal government, the provinces are, on funding health care. How does that go forward? Well, I, I think we have to always uh, work on an issue-by-issue basis. And there's many opportunities that we have to work with the federal government, health care being one of them, their environmental policy uh, not being one of them, as I I mentioned earlier, we've introduced the Saskatchewan First Act uh, that will protect uh, Saskatchewan industries from these notional uh, policies, including just transition, uh, that the federal government uh, is indicating they want to move forward with, which will cost jobs, which will uh, transition us to higher carbon uh, products and sacrifice our energy and food security. And so we're we're having none of that uh, in Saskatchewan. Uh, we will uh, utilize the Saskatchewan First Act wherever we can to protect uh, uh, our ultimately our Canadian energy and food security and our jobs here within this province. However, uh, when it comes to uh, discussions around you know, how do we move forward to powering uh, the next generation with things like rare earth elements? Saskatchewan is also a leader there, and we'd like to work closely with the federal government on that. And when it comes to the the crisis that uh, we are all uh, experiencing uh, as Canadians, and, and I think in other areas of the world as well, in our, our health care facilities, uh, we, we want to work closely with the federal government on how provincially delivered health care is being funded. All provinces, uh, Saskatchewan included, is making every effort to do a, a number of things and investing uh, in people. Ultimately, and people is what we need coming into our healthcare centers. Premier, and now we need the federal. Yep. I apologize. I've done my usual thing. I'm not paying attention to the yep. clock, and I'm way out, way over. I recorded an interview with Pierre Polyev two hours ago. He was available to record then. He wasn't going to be available live because he's going to be on a plane. So I said, okay, we'll we'll pre-record. Let me play for you the conversation I had with the Conservative Party leader, because Parliament resumes next week, and I wanted to have an opportunity to speak with him about what was coming our way and what the issues are for the Conservative Party and for the leader. And so here's the conversation that I recorded with Mr. Polyev about two hours ago. Mr. Polyev, let me start with this. So one year post-Ottawa Freedom Convoy, it's generating mixed reviews. No surprise there. What are your thoughts, and particularly as we close in on the issuance of the report concerning Mr. Trudeau's invoking of the Emergencies Act? Well, this is an occasion when I actually agree with former Liberal Finance Minister in the Trudeau government, Bill Morneau, 
recently said that Justin Trudeau's decision to turn the vaccine mandate issue into a wedge political issue was a terrible mistake. Uh, Trudeau divided the country uh, unnecessarily and without scientific backing. There's no evidence that mandating and forcing the vaccine on people uh, was a lifesaver, that uh, the uh, option of getting vaccinated should obviously have been available. And I encourage people to do so, but I believe they should have freedom of choice. When Trudeau imposed the mandate on truckers, he ultimately uh, was violating any common sense because the truckers are the least likely people to carry a virus or pass a virus on. They're all alone in the truck by themselves all day. And they've been uh, traveling across the border without a vaccine for two years, called the heroes until Trudeau hit them with the mandate that killed their jobs. And then they ended up in Ottawa and the rest is history. Uh, he, that's where this started. And had he not done that, we wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. So let's talk about something that is really troubling. Two years ago, there was polling information that told us 52% of Canadians were within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. This past week, 22% of Canadians told Ipsos for Global News that they are, quote, completely out of money, end quote. That's up 3% since a similar poll last October, and the number rises to 28% for women. Why are we there? What would you do about it? What could you do about it if you were the prime minister? Well, let's acknowledge why we have this problem. The cost of government is driving up the, the cost of living, a half trillion dollars of inflationary deficits that made up the goods we buy and the interest we pay. The more Trudeau spends, the more things cost. Uh, it's just inflation, as I like to call it. But now it's worse than that because according to the governor of the Bank of Canada, these monster deficits are now driving up interest rates. So heavily indebted households are paying more for their mortgages and their car payments. And that is, uh, is breaking the financial back of a lot of families. So what's the solution? One, uh, I'll, I'll cap government spending with a law requiring uh, politicians find a dollar of savings for each new dollar of spending. Two, I will cut the waste by firing the high-priced consultants that now gobble up $15 billion of the government's budget. That's $1,000 for every household in the country. Uh, And uh, I'll save money by uh, cutting things, you know, defunding the waste at the CBC uh, and more. And those savings will bring down the deficit and allow us to defeat inflation and lower interest rates. So that's the first time to get rid of the carbon tax, which Trudeau wants to triple, 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 so that we can lower, by getting rid of it, we'll get lower the cost of gas, heat, and groceries. And uh, we'll be reforming the tax system so people can bring home more of each dollar they earn. Let me stay with, uh, with numbers and uh, broad-base it a bit more to the national economy. Economists are warning the federal government of a turbulent 2023, which the government seems to have difficulty understanding. Now, Canada recently, as you know, over the last six months, has sent the leaders of allies, Germany and Japan, home dissatisfied after they personally visited looking for consistent, increased, and much-needed LNG exports. Massive infusions of money into Canada's economy, social programs, and health care in my view, essentially refused. Now, I've asked you this previously, Mr. Polyev. What would Prime Minister Polyev be able to do and be willing to do on this front? What do you do if the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of Japan come calling? 
say yes. Okay. Can you do it? We have, of course, we got a hundred, we want 1,300 trillion cubic feet of natural gas under our feet. The only reason we can't currently export it to Japan and Germany is we have no export terminals. Uh, now we could easily build them and they would, the private sector would be thrilled to build them because they're very profitable. But uh, Trudeau's anti-energy laws have prevented a single one of the proposed 15 different terminals that were on his desk when he took office. Uh, so uh, the Americans since that time have built seven. The Germans built an import terminal in 194 days from the time it was proposed until the time it was completed. That's not, you know, barely a half a year they built it. Trudeau's had over seven years and hasn't completed a single one. So you just repeal the anti-energy laws, create a new process to approve these that protects the environment, consults First Nations, but gets decisions in a year. And then we can get, we can build a new one in Newfoundland, which is proposed. There's another one uh, in New Brunswick proposed. There are multiple off the West Coast of on the west coast of British Columbia. They're proposed that have enthusiastic support by the local First Nations people who will be part owners in them. I would approve all of them. And let's uh, get our gas to service. By the way, we have a huge advantage because we have cold weather, which makes it cheaper to liquefy. And we're a shorter shipping distance to Europe and Asia than the Americans. So we can get that stuff to market and, and turn dollars for dictators into paychecks for our people. We only have two and a half minutes, and I have four questions. That's the way it works out. What do you do about premiers? What do you do about premiers, about provincial governments that would say to you, no, we're not playing ball? Quebec, for example. Well, in the case of LNG, we actually don't need a pipeline through Quebec. Uh, The LNG proposal in Newfoundland would pipe it from the Jandark offshore oil field. The uh, New Brunswick has its own natural gas that the First Nations want to develop there, and they have an existing... Um, export, basically import terminal that they just want to reverse and turn it into an export terminal that's supported by the local provincial government. So I don't see obstacles with any of those governments. And I would go back to Quebec and say, look, you can get, get it on the action, It'd be good for your economy, uh, and it would be good for the environment. So we encourage you to sign on as well. But there are lots of ways, there are lots of provinces that already agree, and the First Nations are almost unanimous in their support. Healthcare, number one issue with Canadians, even more so than the economy. So healthcare funding with Mr. Trudeau is set to engage, or the, or the Prime Minister is set to engage the Premiers in about two weeks. I spoke with the present and the immediate past presidents of the Canadian Medical Association in recent weeks, and their view is we need a model in which funding follows the patient. Healthcare will be the major issue, I'm sure, in the coming parliamentary session. What strategy would you engage to begin to make Canada's healthcare what we expect it to be? Well, first of all, it's incredible how bad our health care is. And Trudeau's managed to double our national debt, add more debt than all previous prime ministers combined. And yet our health care is worse. He didn't buy any improvement uh, whatsoever with all that money. So what do we, what I, what do I propose? One, we need more doctors and nurses. And I would achieve that by signing deals with the provinces to speed up recognition of the foreign credentials of immigrant doctors and nurses. Uh, less than 50% of whom are, are allowed to actually work in our system, even those that are qualified and pass all the exams to prove that uh, are blocked. So I think we should have a quick system to test them, prove their qualifications, and get them to work in our hospitals uh, as doctors and nurses. Uh, two, 
Um, we need shorter wait lines, which means streamlining the bureaucracy and putting the money onto the front lines rather than the back office. And three, we need the federal bureaucracy to speed up approvals of breakthrough medicines and uh, and treatments that are available in the states and Europe, but blocked here by our bureaucracy. Those are the three things I would do. We are going to today uh, be speaking about the increase in stranger attacks across Canada, and particularly, but not exclusively, in public transit environments, with Toronto and Vancouver leading the way. What's your assessment of what's going on, and how would you address a situation like this, which spontaneously appears? There are underlying causes. How would you address this? Well, first, we have to reduce or re- reverse Justin Trudeau's bail law. He, uh, he brought in a catch-and-release system, which, allow, which allows repeat violent offenders who are newly arrested for a new violent charge to get back out on the street the same day. And these offenders then go offend again and again and again. The police are helpless to do anything because they know that the, the offender will just get back out. So what I would do is for repeat violent offenders, stipulate they can't get bail, um, except under exceptional circumstances where they prove that they are safe. Second thing I would do is take the money Trudeau wants to spend chasing down hunters uh, and hunting rifles and instead put that into um, more policing and more drug treatment and recovery so that we can protect uh, our, our, our people, but also give help to those who are mentally ill and who are uh, addicted to drugs. Many of these attacks are by drug addicts who are looking for money to try and pay for their habit. I would like to get those people into treatment and recovery. That's what Alberta's doing, and it's already starting to work. Let's bring it home. One-fifth of Canadians completely out of money. 22% of Canadians, according to Ipsos polling for Global News, are completely out of money, quote-unquote. Now, the number rises to 28% when you're talking about the impact on women. About two years ago, we first started talking about the significant percentage of Canadians who are unable or are approaching the point where they couldn't pay their bills at the end of the month. They were within $200 of not being able to pay their monthly bills. Now we have 22% of Canadians telling Ipsos for Global News they are completely out of money. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's the author of that incredible book, Next, which is all about what's going to happen in this country next going forward. And Daryl joins us. Daryl, thank you for the time. That 22% of Canadians overall and 28% of women uh, completely out of money. Is that figure of speech or is that reality? No, I think it is reality. I think, you know, when you go and you look consistently across the public opinion, all the public opinion data that we collect these days, um, the, the issue of the affordability of life is really paramount for Canadians. So while the numbers are shocking, the trend is something that we've been seeing consistently uh, probably for at least the last year. And these numbers, and you talk about the trending you've seen for the last year, these numbers are up considerably over the last one you did in October, yes? Yeah, up three points. And, And not just on this one question, but when you look across all of the questions that we asked about affordability, all of those questions, we've seen um, concern trending up. Who's hurting most? Well, what we're seeing in the survey results is uh, women, uh, people who are middle-aged and younger. So older Canadians actually getting through this better than people in their mortgage-paying years or house-buying years. 
And uh, disproportionately, and this is really concerning, people with kids at home. They're the ones who are hurting the most. Right. And it's, we're talking about staples that everyone needs in their homes, food, clothing, shelter, transportation. They're all in there, yes? Yes. And, and just to add another, a little bit more context to this, Roy, 22% say they're flat out of money, but there's another 32% who say that if, there were, if, if this trend continues, that they're not going to be able to make, make, uh, make their bills either. So the number is not just 22. It's actually almost uh, just above half of us are really concerned about their abilities to make their, their, their monthly payments. A lot of sleepless nights in Canada, Daryl. Yeah, there are. And, and as you correctly pointed out, not for all of us, but disproportionately for people who are in their mortgage-paying years, yeah. house-buying years, family-raising years, those expensive years of your life, those are the people who are hurting the most, they tell us. So, so what are the other, some of the other factors or, or uh, headings under affordability that, that you asked about? that people are concerned about? Whether or not they're able to uh, feed their families. 62% of the people that we talked to said, you know, they're really concerned about their ability to do that. Uh, You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've never seen numbers that that look like this, where people uh, looking at just their basic lives don't feel that they're in a position to be able to get by. Um, Now, hopefully what we're going to see is that the economy is going to improve through the course of the year. But if it doesn't, uh, the trends on these numbers are not good. Well, the economy would have to improve significantly to make a real dent in these numbers, wouldn't it? Well, it's not just the economy, Roy. It's not just the uh, you know, is economic growth improving or is the stock market improving. It, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that these are not the business, these are not business section stories. So the way that we report mm-hmm. uh, you know, what's happening in the economy these days is we almost report it like sports, yeah. you know, like scores in the stock market or whatever. No, these are, these are the effects that people are feeling in their daily lives. So even if the economy improves, if the cost of living doesn't improve, then this trend will continue. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, and, and I mentioned this with my guest on the last half hour, Dr. Eric Kem, economist. The, uh, the mood around the dinner tables in this country, in, in many, not, not every home, obviously, but in a significant percentage, certainly in the one-fifth that are completely out of money, and the 32% who are worried they will be if things don't improve, that's 54% of the national population, uh, either out of money, completely out of money, or worried they will be. Those conversations around the dinner table, they're going to be stressful for everyone. We, 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 Daryl, we were talking for the last couple of years about the stress Canadians were experiencing because of, the, because of COVID, because of the pandemic. Now we add this, and, the, and, and our economic stresses are, are massive. How can you, know, you look at your kids? You want to be sure you feed your kids. You want to make sure that you, know, you have a roof over your heads. And now we have people in Canada, an incredibly prosperous First Nation world, worried about the fundamentals. Well, you know, it is interesting. Uh, when we were worried about COVID, you know, everybody kind of got behind it. And, you know, we worked out vaccines. We worked out a whole bunch mm-hmm. of things. And a lot of the punditry was talking about the fact that, you know, once we get this behind us, it's going to be happy days are here again. It's going to be like the roaring 20s. Mm-hmm. Things are going to be great. And yeah. that's exactly what hasn't happened. What's happened is almost one for one concern about COVID has declined. And concern not about the economy, but the cost of living has replaced it. So and while we were talking, no vaccine for that. Yeah. While we were talking big picture economy, hoping to come roaring back a year or two years ago, now it's at the dinner table. Now it's personal economy. Now it's family economy. What am I going to do? And as somebody just uh, emailed me, 
What do I do about my aging parents? They have their own a fixed income. I'm in a situation where I have to worry about feeding my family. Now I have to worry about my parents. And the and and this particular uh, series of uh, of impactful moments just continues to climb. Well, it's funny, you know, when we go out and we do surveys on things like politics, it's, you know, you say to people, you know, how who are you going to vote for tomorrow? It's like, ah, oh, you know, I haven't really been thinking about it, but I guess the following. Since you brought it up, I'll you know, I'll mm-hmm. say the following. When it comes to the this type of issue, people wake up every morning thinking about it. This yeah. is persistent. This is in yeah. their households. This is in their day-to-day conversations. Yeah. This is in the choices that they're making about how they're going to live their lives. So these, these numbers are deep and they're important. They are. You also found, what, uh, 62% of women? Uh, there's gender disparity in these numbers. 62% of women fear they won't be able to afford gas for their vehicles. Yeah, and you know, it's and this is what we're seeing. There are specific groups that really do stand out, and women is one of them. Uh, people who are you know middle aged and younger uh, also stand out, um, and also people who are in you know lower income groups obviously are going to be the most pressured in all of this. But the uh, th- this is clearly the issue that is day to day for Canadians right now. It is the one that's keeping them up at night. It's the one that they would love to see a solution for, but. They can't. They can't think of what about what that would be. And I have a feeling that uh, many people are suffering in silence behind their front doors. Well, that's what these numbers are. That's what these numbers are showing us. Right? There's a lot of people who are suffering. They're they're they're, they're not talking to people about it. Right? Through our polling, but, um, you know, we're not. They're not protesting in the streets. Yeah, and they're not. They're not volunteering the information to their family necessarily or their neighbors or their friends because they don't want to be the ones who say, I don't think I'm going to make it or I may not make it. Boy, this is really, really, really important. As you said, this is extremely important. It's reflective of the greatest fear in our society right now. I would say that that is the greatest fear. You want to take care of your family. That's the number one issue. In one sentence, what's the takeaway here? What's the takeaway? This is going to define the year 2023. We're either going to get on top of this and start making improvements, or it's going to become really difficult. And if I'm a political leader, I'm very concerned. Amalgamated Transit Union Canada President John Denino has called for a national task force to tackle this issue of violence on these transit systems, which I support because they have seen violence, which has been taken note of in uh, Halifax, in Saskatoon, in Vancouver, and in parts of Alberta. They estimate, the uh, Amalgamated Transit Union Canada, that some 3,000 operators across Canada are being assaulted each year. And that, of course, is completely unacceptable. Toronto Mayor John Tory on the uh, assaults, stranger assaults, and the Toronto Transit Commission and their um, their platforms, their buildings, their subways. It's happening in uh, Vancouver. It's happening across the country. And it's not just uh, public transit. These stranger assaults are happening in uh, different locales under different circumstances at different times of the day. They're on the increase across this country. And um, one of the questions that's being asked is, how much of this issue deals with mental health? And and uh, are victims of stranger assaults fair? How are they faring? How are the victims faring after these uh, violent confrontations? Julia Roddy is a victim of a violent stranger attack on Toronto Transit Commission property. She wrote an op-ed about the experience in the uh, Globe and Mail, and the headline is, I was a victim of random violence on the TTC. Throwing money at the problem won't make us safer. Julia, thank you for joining us. How are you? 
I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Yeah, good to have you with us. Uh, Mark Hennick has been a guest on this program many times. Mental health strategist. He served as national spokesperson for the Canada-wide Faces of Mental Illness campaign. He attempted suicide at 15, and his TED Talk description of that event, during which Mark's life was saved by a stranger, has been viewed millions of times online. He's the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting. His book and podcast are titled So-Called Normal. Mark, thank you very much uh, for joining us. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you, Roy, for having me back. Yeah, I've started this thing of asking people how they are, and I think it, it, it's all arrived with COVID. I started asking people, how are you? I have to stop that. That's a question I don't like because then you feel compelled to answer. Julia, in your case, I did want to know how you are. How are you after that assault? And can you describe to us, please, what, what happened? What went on that, 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 that day at the TTC location? Well, I've been very lucky since, and I'm doing really well because of a lot of support. Uh, that day was harrowing, um, I think, as many would imagine. I was on my way on my normal commute, on my way down to the office, had got on to my subway car, sat and opened my book. And then um, a stranger who had come up from the other direction hit me on the shoulder, had thrown a bottle at me, and it landed in the aisle. And at that point, uh, myself and my fellow passengers were, I think, on a little bit higher alert. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's a precursor to anything awful happening because things happen all the time. Um, unfortunately, in my case, you know, about a minute later, the individual picked up the bottle and then uh, hit me on the head with it um, with a tremendous amount of force. Um, so much so that it was it punctured my forehead. I required some stitches. And at that point, my fellow passengers really jumped to um, these strangers all came to help. I was incredibly fortunate. There was an off duty police officer on the subway car that day. My assailant was able to be subdued. We arrived into the station and other emergency personnel, first the fire department and then EMS and police officers, they all showed up. But until that point and until everything was sort of smoothed out, both the day-to-day -day operators at the TTC were incredible in trying to control the crowds, making sure my fellow passengers felt safe and that things continued in an orderly fashion and that, that I was looked after as well. Um, and a number of strangers just waited with me, and it was quite tremendous. You know, I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, how do you how does a person process what happened to you, any person? You're on your way doing your routine um, things. You're following your, your routine plan of, of getting about in the city of Toronto, and then you become a victim of a, a random violent attack and everything that follows. Uh, as you, and, I, and I'm referencing now, starting to reference your op-ed, because not only did you deal or do you still deal with what happened to you, but you're also looking for cause and for a, a way to, if not preclude entirely, then certainly um, reduce in number the, the numbers of attacks that happen and provide the kind of environment where that works. I'm, I'm over talking this. Why don't you share with us, Julia, what it is that you've been thinking and what the essence of your op-ed is? So part of the processing is, you know, making sure, you know, I wasn't in any way provocative in, in that in that moment. It was random. And so 
on one hand, it's it's random, so I didn't do anything to preempt sort of the attack. Um, so there's a bit of cold comfort there. Um, at the same time, you start a process, well, why is this random? And I'm not the only person who's had this experience. Um, there are people who, who before me in, in the days and the weeks, and there certainly have been people since. And so it's been a little bit surreal as, you know, you've heard those stories and suddenly you go from having your name, or at least my name, I realize, you know, is now associated with that quote unquote victim um, who is anonymous and then the papers have reported about as having been the subject of one of these attacks. And so part of the processing is, of course, well, I am part of now a pattern. I'm not the only one. And what is animating the circumstances um, within which these can occur. Um, and not going to, you know, for any number of reasons. And for that, you know, I think it's better to turn to mental health and social work um, experts um, as to why. But I would certainly see, you know, being somebody who reads the papers and books and all of these, that we are undergoing a period where we're seeing cracks in our system. Um, you know, and my op-ed spoke to this, that I think our infrastructure that supports people who are marginalized, who are facing insecurity um, as a result of the pandemic now, you know, with rising inflation rates. And then even before that, you know, there's always a, a constant uh, discussion about it. So I have to wonder if that doesn't contribute to sort of this scenario and that we need to maybe look deeper and take a longer view and a more patient view as how to work our way to healing. Yeah, you're, you're wrote and you're very generous. Since my assault, I've been billed for co-payment of my ambulance ride to the hospital where I received necessary stitches. I've seen the media coverage, the videos, and the accounts from fellow passengers. I've not seen any outreach, no one in Toronto's municipal government or the TTC, not even a caseworker for assault victims, has followed up to see how I was doing or whether I was healing. If this is the paltry response I get as a victim, it stands to reason my assailant has received even less. Uh, Mark Hennick, the the next thought people have had and continue to have is this has to be closely related to mental health issues. First of all, in your view and your experience, is is that a, a logical um, connection? And where does mental health enter the picture of these stranger attacks? Yeah, you know, first of all, I want to say, Julia, how sorry I am to hear for about everything that you went through uh, and what you've said that stands to reason that the person who attacked you probably didn't get any intervention either, uh, I think is good reasoning. Uh, that That is what we typically see. Now, look, uh, we hear this every time that there's a violent act, that somebody must be crazy. Somebody must be mentally ill in order to commit uh, an act like this. Uh, and the science just does not support that conclusion. Uh, crime and violence are are much more closely associated with things like gender, age, uh, poverty, substance abuse, especially, but not mental illness. People, in fact, with mental health problems are no more likely to be violent than the average population. Uh, we would have to, according to some research, uh, round up more than 35,000 people uh, with schizophrenia from the streets, which is typically the most, uh, the highest risk for violence, uh, relatively speaking. We'd have to round up 35,000 thousand of them in order to prevent just one 
uh, violent act, uh, one random homicide. So, look, there are civ- civil rights uh, 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 trade-offs here that are happening, and it's not the most efficient uh, use of our resources to target uh, the mentally ill as though they are a violent, separate population. It's just not the case. So, Mark, then, if I can just take your thought and run with it a little bit, for for many people, people with mental health issues have been available for criticism or to have their finger pointed at them is likely being responsible for these stranger attacks because they provided mentally uh, challenged people, mental health uh, people with mental health issues have provided the path of least resistance. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's also uh, uh, an underlying stigma that we as a society share uh, that there has to be something wrong. And that, I think, reveals more about us than it reveals about the people who are struggling. And look, when you think of it, if somebody gets attacked uh, randomly or otherwise, there's a pretty good chance that person might be dealing with a mental health problem anyway, because who isn't? We know that according to statistics, more than half of the Canadian population by the age 40 uh, will have experienced directly a mental health problem or illness. So that's like saying that there's a correlation between having arms and being violent or having asthma and being violent. We know a huge number of people are dealing with these things, but it doesn't give us the specificity uh, to identify it as a root cause of that violence. I'm, I'm very suspicious of, of that approach, and I don't think it would be effective, actually. Uh, Julia, if I go back to your op-ed, uh, you, uh, you wrote, we move on too quickly and throw money at reactive measures while the actual problems are left to fester. The alleged attacker was caught, your attacker, and so to many, everything has been resolved, case closed. But nothing could be further from the truth. There is no quick fix. My story is just one of many that reveals the systemic failure of our social infrastructure and the ways in which we need to redirect our energies, efforts, and money towards social programming and mental health supports. Just expand on that a little bit, little bit for us, please. What, what, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I'd like to hear it in your words. Well, I think that there's, of course, the more immediate need to try and ensure safety. So many people use the TTC and you want to feel assured. But I think um, for some, law enforcement will be a sign of safety. And for others, it might be just the opposite. So I think we need to be very careful that this would be a way to fix the problem. And I think we do ourselves a disservice not to expand wider and look at the ways that uh, insecurity in a person's life might be driving them to make uh, certain choices. Um, What supports are they getting? Um, Are they hungry? Are they facing substance abuse issues? Um, Any number of different um, issues that a person might be facing And I don't think we're addressing those. And they take a longer time to fix. They are a subtler fix. They're about conversation. They're about thinking outside the box, I think, a little bit um, in terms of the way that we address them. Um, And it's not so visible a, 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 a fix. So I think, you know, to that end, you need to do something to try and assure riders that it's going to be okay. But those are just reactive measures. They're just a band aid. Uh, at, at some point, you need to you need to be able to address what's actually causing the hurt. Uh, Mark, if I could get you to just uh, comment on what Julia just said, but let me add this first. There's a report from Vancouver 
that speaks to the on-the-street drug supply issue, and I'm quoting now, changes in drug patterns are contributing to unpredictable and sometimes violent behavioral patterns. People are now becoming violent who we have never seen act violently in the past. Yeah, look, I would uh, I would certainly respond um, to that that comment as well as agree with what Julia said. Look, I think substance related disorders here, substance abuse uh, is the core issue. Um, and I think we would have a, a much greater return on investment if we were to able to uh, approach that head on. Uh, we know that abstinence based programs where we, we just wage a war on drugs, they're not that effective. However, if we were to expand harm reduction, if we were to expand uh, mental health supports that actually help people to recover uh, rather than to try to identify and persecute and detain them, uh, then we could make some potentially uh, really productive Productive headway here. We need to house people. We need to feed people. Uh, we need to meet people's basic needs. If Toronto, for example, were to take that $48 million extra that they're giving to the Toronto police uh, and instead invest that into upstream uh, diversion and prevention efforts, uh, I think that return on investment would bear itself out in things like violence on the TTC. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.